0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and your Dana Osband Our daf of the day, Masachet Beitzah, daf Lamed Zion, page 37. We are in the home stretch. Masachet is 40 dafim. We got just a few left to go. I just want to mention the Siyum on next Sunday, which is October 10th, which the we're going to have the usual Zoom at 5 p.m. Israel time and 10 a.m. East Coast of the United States time and the rest of you all over the place. We know you're there and we're glad you're there. Uh, you can fill in the times yourselves. Please note that we have sent out questions. Um, we would like to hear from you and be able to engage in the conversation about the process of learning and the content of learning uh, together in a different kind of way, perhaps, than we've been able to do so far. Um as part of the Siyum, as part of our Cium from Masakha Beitsa. If you have any questions about the questions, feel free to contact us. You've got us through Facebook and WhatsApp or, you know, the email that we send out for the Cium. Uh You can reach us personally. There are many ways we, you can find us. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, the fact is, I think, Ireden, I think even via Anchor they could call us or leave a message. Um, okay. I am looking at Ahmed Aleph, at the top of the daf, which cites the Mishnah, where it was talking about, if you'll recall, we were talking about the things that are not allowed on Shabbos, that are also not allowed on Yantif, and they include some things that are mitzvot. And you would think, but isn't that a mitzvah? Shouldn't it be allowed to be done? Is, the citation is that you should not do chalitza, and you can also not perform the levirate marriage. The chalitza is the getting out of a levirate marriage, and the yibum is Is the marriage um, again? This is just quickly. When if a man dies um, childless, then and he has a brother, then his widow marries the brother, and any children they have, or for the purpose of having children in the dead brother's name. So nowadays the process is really just chalitza. People do not have yibum, at least not to my knowledge. And the chalitza process is to eliminate the requirement, so that this woman then is free to marry whomever she might choose, who is not the brother of the dead husband. So the Gemara asks, mitzvah ka'avid. isn't that a mitzvah? Like once you're doing a mitzvah, that should be enough, right? You could, should be able to do it on job Shabbos Yentef. No, we have to say that it's optional. That's the category that the Mishnah puts it in, as opposed to putting it in the category of mitzvah. This is the, this is the real comment here. Like, hello, it's a mitzvah. In fact, that's what I said to begin with also. We're talking about things that are mitzvot, but the G- Mishnah categorizes it as in that middle category of something that is optional gadol Because it's like this. The reason they're optional is that we're talking about when there's an older brother, gadol, when there's an older one, right? In general, you want to carry out the mitzvah for the older brother to perform, to do this yivum, right? As opposed to, but then what about a younger brother? A younger brother is what's called optional. So rather than think that we're, meaning... Let me set up the case a little bit better. If we're, there's a, a woman who's married to a man, the man dies, and he's got more than one brother through, who should be doing yibum with this woman, with the widow. So the older brother is a mitzvah. The younger brother is an option. If the older brother, let's say, I don't know, doesn't want to, it doesn't automatically go to chalitah. It can go to the younger brother. All of this will be covered in great, great, very, very great detail in Masachet Yavamot you know, the same word comes from Yibub. But the point here is um, kind of picking apart the Mishnah, why this is under the category of optional as opposed to under Mish- and as opposed to Mitzvah. tamamai, And then the Gemara wants to clarify, right, that the whole reason that we're talking about um, not having Dayanut, the, the not having cases judged or um, formal engagements, betrothals on Shabbos and Yantif, about all of these, why not? According to the Gemara, the reason that we avoid all of those, which is not the Liverate right, marriage, but all the other ones, is it to say that it's a, a decree lest one come to write. You don't technically need to write for these things to take place, but or at least for most of them to get to take place, you can a man can betroth a woman without any writing. But what happens if one were to do so with a document and therefore come to write? So the concern is lest one come to write on and have or yantif, which is obviously prohibited, and that's that. And then the Gemara goes on, the category in the Mishnah that says that you don't do these things, you know, they are mitzvah and you don't do them, so you don't consecrate and you don't take a vow to evaluate things and you don't... a different kind of consecrate, right? All these words are really dedication to the to the mitz, to the mikdash to the beta mikdash kind of thing. Mishum And there we've also got a sweeping rule, like the sweeping rule for the writing. This is a sweeping rule of saying this looks like it's commerce, it looks like business, and we're not dealing with business with a temple on Shabbos or Ayantif. So we're going to make sure that things that might technically kind of be acceptable to do, but look like they're an issue of business. We're going to forego them for the sake on Shabbat and then Take care of it the next day. On Sunday, do your do your dedication of whatever it was that you were going to dedicate.
1: So it's interesting that, you know, even something that is a mitzvah still has an appearance of business, especially when it deals with transferring of property of ownership, right? When you're makadish something, you're basically saying you're consecrating it to the temple. So you're in a way transferring ownership. So you like a business deal. And so thinking about it that way, you know, I was intrigued then by the next section here, which talks about Truman Maser, because I would have thought, okay, so Truman Maser, right, the separating of the portion for the Kohan and for the priests and for the Levium also in a way sort of has like a businessy piece to it, right? Like you're sort of counting your fruits. You have to figure out how much to, you know, give off, you know, take away to give but the Gemara actually gives a different explanation for it. V'lo magbiin truma umasro, right? One cannot separate truma and maser pshita. So it says, it, isn't it obvious, right? Because the real reason is, if you actually look at the commentators, is that the food, that fruit, before you take truma and maser from it, it's not usable. You actually can't eat it because you didn't take truma and maser from it. So in a way, you're sort of like. Fixing the food or you're repairing it. And that's really what's not okay with it. Tani Rav Yosef, because Rav Yosef taught. So the reason why we had to learn this mission, why did the mission have to specify this? Because it should be obvious that you're not allowed to do this, is because maybe somebody would think, you know, that uh, if I give it, let's say I separate it on Shabbat with the purpose of giving it to a priest on Shabbat then maybe it would be okay. And so the mission has to basically say, no, there's no separating of Truman Maser on Shabbos or on Yom Tov. Um, and it doesn't make a difference if you were going to give it that day. However, there's a good exception to this. Bahani mele peret de tible mol. So this applies only to produce that was untyped. In other words, it was basically Tebel um, on the day before the Chag. So in other words, Yom Tov. So in other words, if Friday you had you know, whatever it is lying around that you need to take Truman master from, part of the issue is, is you should have just done it before Yom Tov started or before Shabbat started, and therefore you're not allowed to do it. However, aval about de Tivle hadena, but produce that becomes untied. Now, I know they keep using the word Peire, which means literally produce, but we'll see this isn't something that we classically think of as produce, but something that becomes untied. In other words, gains the status of Tevel, right, which is untied food, on Yom Tov itself, Kagon Isa La'afrushay Mine Chala. So, this was a great intersection because we know that you're allowed to bake on Yom Tov. So, what happens when you make your challah dough and you have to separate chala from it, which has to be given to the priest? So, are we going to say that you can't separate chala even though you're allowed to bake? So, it would be basically saying, like, you can prepare the dough, you can bake it, but you can't do that final step of separating the chala which is a gift to the, the Kohen. And so they say, so if you make the Isa, if you make the dough on that day of Yom Tov itself, right? Ma frishim be yavin le Kohen. You separate it on Yom Tov and you bring it to the Kohen on Yom Tov. So I thought this little passage had a very interesting intersection. Again, I would have thought maybe the reason for Truman Maser, they could have used the commerce one because again, it's like a transferring of ownership but that's not what they use. It really has to do with fixing of food. They don't talk about it in that way at all. And second, it's interesting to see what the exception is. Once we're always going to allow a preparation of food on Yom Tov, if by preparing the food, you invoke or make something Tevel, that is something that you actually are allowed to give as a gift. And I guess I, the only, it's its not, it wouldn't be your fruits or or vegetables or anything like that, because that you should have, you know, dealt with the day before, you wouldn't be harvesting it to itself. So we really sort of see, you know, particularly in the, the dough category, sort, you know, sort of two competing interests here, the ability to make food, but also the ability to be able to eat that food once you gave that gift to the Kohen.
0: I feel like this is where we really juggle different categories of halacha, because... I don't want to say it's mixed messaging, right? It's just that it's complicated detail that appears to conflict until you figure out how not to have it conflict.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent way to say it. It's it's juggling, competing, halakhic, you know, values. And so you have to sort of figure out how they're going to all to play all together. And the key here is you separate it, but you have to give it to the coin that day.
0: Which, of course, we can't do nowadays.
1: Right. Well, that's a separate issue. Um, no, right, but then, right, then, you're... We
0: come, when, then we come to the question of like, so what are you supposed to do? Can you burn it? But is that destroying? Can you do that? Meaning there's a lot of questions here, I feel.
1: Right. So that, that's what I'm going to me. bring up. There's some practical issues today, how that works. Because when we take Kylo today, exactly, we burn it. So that are you allowed to do modern day? But we'll, we'll discuss that at another time. Um, all right, <laughs> now I think you're, you're heading...
0: Yes, we, as we go through this, another long daf, it's really interesting. Some of the dafim and Beta have been very long, some quite short. Behema ha vekelim So what happens? We've got the status of animals and also vessels on Yontif are like the feet of the owners. What does that mean? It's that they're the same way that a person is not supposed to travel, you know, out of Tchum, whatever, on Shabbat or on Chag, so too... Um, any animals that a person might own or any of these vessels also cannot have those, cannot travel beyond those limits. So for example, if somebody owns an animal and he hands it over to his son or to a shepherd, and all of this is before Chag, meaning the other person is going to be now responsible for taking care of the animal. uh, Nonetheless, the distance that that animal can go on Shabbos or Yentef is still only as far as the original owner would go, even if the shepherd might have, I don't know, a domain outside or whatever that will allow them to go further. Uh, it doesn't matter. The owner, the who owns the animal, determines how far it can go. So now we're going to talk about vessels, the, the utensils, vessels, so what happens if they've been We've got the, in the family, right, several people have inherited um, goods and they they haven't yet sorted out who's going to own what. So they're still owned jointly, meaning they all have an, an equal share or whatever, an almost equal share in the inheritance. So now they're designated for use, right? That's when you have They're designated for one of the brothers to be using it. In the house, and then these other brothers don't have any any uh, claim to it. So then, these vessels are like his feet. What does that mean? Like his feet, they are again bound by whatever limitations on his travel that he would have. So to the items themselves, even if a different brother might technically still have a claim, uh, a portion of ownership, because it's been designated for the use of a particular brother, uh, it can't go. It can't. It doesn't get the travel rights of that brother, it stays with the owner. <inaudible> if it hasn't been designated, if nothing has been specified, <inaudible> uh, then then it's um, limited, or rather perhaps not limited, to the place where they would all go, where they all might go, um, meaning all, so this is what I would say, more limited. All of the brother's limitations are then kind of incumbent on that item. It can't go... Any farther than any of them could go, um, as opposed to going as far as the farthest one of them could go. It has to, it's bound by each each one of them. Uh, this, I feel, is like also a whole separate discussion than anything that we've really talked about so far. Ha-sho'el kli and the Mishnah goes on: somebody who borrows a vessel, borrows a vessel mechaverav from his friend me'eriv yom tov kiragle shoel when you borrow, the travel limitations are on the borrower, not on the lender. But Yom Tov that's when it's Erev But if it's already Yantif, you come to borrow something on Yantif itself, you can all, the limitations of how far that vessel can go are now the limitations of the lender, not the borrower. And likewise, a woman who has borrowed from her friend spices and water and salt for her dough, right? The, she's making this challah, for example. So then these things, so it's a little bit tricky because the ingredients, right, you're you're borrowing, but you're also not giving it back. So these are limited by the the how far each one of them could travel. Um, I, I find this interesting in so many ways. First of all, it's not clear to me why the woman category... Is its own category. I understand the joint ownership, so to speak, of the food stuff, right? Like when you lend it, but you don't get it back. Um, So then that I get why it's a separate category. It's not clear to me why it has to be a woman. I've asked this question before. Um, The last time we had women show up in a place where it just seemed kind of, I don't know, extraneous. Uh, Maybe that's unfair to say um but or not not specific i'm not taking issue with who's doing the baking fine let the woman do the baking but this doesn't have to be anything specific to baking right let's say you were barbecuing and you i don't know borrowed uh i don't know spices for your barbecue right so then then wouldn't that be on then the expectation of the mission i feel would be on the man so i don't really understand how it comes specific to the woman um and then, but also the fact that it is in this, in this kind of limbo category of the travel limitations, like how far are you going to travel to borrow your salt and your spices and your water for your dough? It seems that neither of them should have any difficulty making sure that they are within whatever distance they could travel. And lastly, in the mission of ein behemamash. But Rabbi Huda says that you have no travel limitations when it comes to water because water itself is considered to be and mamash it has no substance which of course in this day and age we know better we treat water like the prize that it is think about you know the industry that has come to to bring water to you know to i don't I'm not even talking about drinking potable water to places that don't that wouldn't have it otherwise i'm just thinking about the bottled water which is a you know, to say that it has no substance um sounds a little funny today that's all
1: yeah, I mean, but it uh, shows like very common scenarios that probably happen between neighbors, between friends, you know, and how does that actually impact the celebration of Yom Tov. So I, I like this note; It seemed very practical to me. Um, we need to wrap up this episode. But one thing I just wanted to point out was on Ahmed bet. You know, we've seen, we see our old friends, Yesh Brayra and Brayra again. So, um, you know, that is the whole discussion about whether or not one can have, uh, sort of a retroactive uh, designation, right? yesh right, that you can. Um, in other words, right, ladies, here, so best here, is that if you have a barrel um, that's owned by two people or an animal that's owned by two people, and they want to sort of, uh, let's say, divide the content of the barrel or the meat of the animal between them on Yom Tov itself, right, how does it work with their tachums, with their Shabbat limits? That's what the content is about. Um, and so Rub says that the barrel is allowed, but the animal is prohibitive. And Shmuel says that the barrel is prohibited. You know, they're talking about beyond the tachum. You can't move it farther than the tachum that's shared by both of those people. Um, and so they basically said it comes down to a question of retroactive designation. What I thought was interesting here is, is that other times where we've seen this discussion about yesh breh it always centered around a Tanaitic dispute, generally between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon, about which one holds by retroactive designation and who doesn't. And usually except Rabbi Yehuda does not hold by retroactive. He holds Eim Brei Ra. Here it's an Amoreic dispute. It's a dispute between Rav and Shmuel. So I just wanted to point out, we see our old halachic concept of Yesh Brei Ra, which seems to pop up in every single masachat. And I think we saw it earlier in the masachat as well. But again, the difference is here, this is an Amoraic dispute, whereas previously we'd only seen it in the context of Tanaitic dispute. So I thought that was interesting.
0: Yeah, I think it is very interesting. I- I'm not surprised that the Amoraim would continue the Tanaitic debate. Yeah, of course
1: that it would go on, but it's interesting they don't link it up. And I, the only thing I could think of is that the specific case that they're talking about, which is more about joint ownership and to whom there's probably not a direct parallel to with the Tana debate, but I was a little surprised to see they didn't link it up to the Tana discussions around Yeshurun and Birrah. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. review reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadram website. Let us know what you thought about the staff and our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.